You're listening to American Timelines. American Timelines. American Timelines by History for Jerks. History for Jerks. The greatest. The greatest. The greatest podcast ever. American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to another episode of American, American Timelines. Time I'm Amy. And I am Mitch Trout. Okay, and this is the podcast that brings you all the crazy, nostalgic, interesting events from the past. Hell yeah, it does. And we do it year by year. You ain't whistling Dixie. All right, Mitch, or otherwise known Mitch, Mitch Trout, y'all. Or otherwise known as Joe. Um, tonight, Mitch Trout got a big old butt. Uh-huh. Mitch Trout okay. got a big old butt. Uh-huh. Mitch Trout. All right, we are talking tonight. Some people call me Mitch the Bitch. What year are we talking about tonight? We are continuing where we left off in 1962. 1962. Mitch Trout's favorite year. Okay, so what's the first event? <laughs> well, we left off. <coughs> You're right. Excuse me. We finished February. 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 I put the brew in February. I'm drinking a uh, All right. Gold Bells. Or. Uh, uh, what's it called? Don't look at me. The official. It's a hazy IPA from Bell's. It's kind of new. All right. So we got that out of the way. But I put the brew in February. But we're moving on to March now. Okay. 1962. And you see what we do. If you haven't listened before. Oh, real quick. we got to say this is episode 70. That's yes. a milestone. Welcome to episode 70. And we are kicking ourselves. We've been kicking ourselves all week. Because last week we didn't mention that it was episode 69. You were we kidding were, yourself. No, we were both very upset. Like, we didn't even talk about that it was 69 I don't episode think, 69, dude. I think that's, I don't think because that's necessary. 69 is a sexual position. I know. All right. In which. All right, uh, we're done with that. You put your mouth. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, what. You don't want to talk about that? No. Let's okay. start. <laughs> Thursday, March 1st, 1962. Mm-hmm. Mitch Trout would like to tell you about the first Kmart uh, 60,000 square foot store opened in Garden City, Michigan. Okay. It was originally known as, do you know what it was originally known as? No. Kresge's. Oh, they used to have those in St. Louis. They did? I think. I need to ask my mom about you that. You can find me in St. Louis. Kresge's sounds really familiar. Where we just smoke All right. Oh, dang. Okay. Um, it's funny that your family's from St. Louis, and Why? Nellie sings that song about, you can find me in St. Louis where we just smoke and F all day. Why is that funny? What? Because that, once he, you know, once that song came out, I was like, is that what your family all did all the time? You just kind of just oh, smoked and F all day? you just assumed? Well, because Nellie says that's what you do in St. Louis. Yeah, it's true. You can find me My grandma and grandpa, Louis, everybody. Where Amy's grandparents smoke and fuck all day. Anyway, Kresge's was a five-and-dime store founded in 1899. Mm -hmm. It was modernized under Harry B. Cunningham and reopened as Kmart, less than 30 miles from Kresge's headquarters in downtown Detroit. Okay. Also, on Thursday, March 1st, 1962, an American Airlines 707 plunged nose first into Jamaica Bay, New York, killing 95. Jamaica Bay? I wonder where that is. It's in New York. No, I know, but I wonder, like, I've never heard of it. You've never heard of Jamaica Bay, New York? It is, uh, obviously. You're uh, looking it up, as you're looking it up. (laughs) Everybody knows where it is. Uh, Jamaica Bay is the one, you know, it's the bay that everybody knows. It's a lagoon in New York. York. A lagoon? It's a lagoon by, uh, oh, it's right there by uh, the airport. What? By Floyd Bennett Field, Rockaway Park. Okay. It's right there. See, in New York, Brooklyn's here. It's right there to the right. So it's down at the bottom there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that sucks. They yeah. They crashed. It crashed, and I don't have any other information Okay. on that. So there we and go. And then the next day, the very next day after that plane crash, killing 95 people, Wilt the Stilt Chamberlain. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember when we talked about him 
last episode, that, that game, he scored 67 points. Yes. And I said, what the hell else was anybody else doing? Right. Like, how do you let, how does one guy score 67 points and nobody else do anything? Right. On Friday, March 2nd, 1962, I just hope you're prepared to have your ass blown out right now. Because okay. Wilt the Stilt Chamberlain scored 100 points. 100 points. 100 points, and he broke an NBA record as wow. the Philadelphia Warriors beat the New York Knicks 169 to 147. Holy you, cow. Think you one guy? It, one guy. Nobody else even played. I guess not. You, yeah, the, the, the rest of the team scored 69 points. He scored 100. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. You'd think he would take it easy on them because 95 New Yorkers died the day before. What did team did he play for? He played for the Philadelphia Warriors, which are now not in Philadelphia anymore. They moved to you know, oh. you know where the Warriors play? No. I No. You have no idea? No. I've never heard of them. You take a guess? No. They've, they won, they've won the NBA championship recently. St- Stephon Curry from Charlotte. Who are you talking to? <laughs> uh, right now, a well-informed, beautiful woman mm-hmm. who's a smart and capable. Who could care, couldn't care less about sports? You know who Steph Curry is? I've heard of that person. <laughs> you have? Do you know who that person is? Is it a man? It is a man. He's a basketball player. He is a basketball player. He went See? to Davidson. See, and he's from Charlotte. His dad, Del Curry, played for the Charlotte Hornets. All right, who cares? Anyway, What's next? He plays for the Golden State Warriors. They're in Golden State now. You know what the Golden State is? California. Yeah, boom. You're a genius. You know everything about sports. Okay. Let's move on because who cares about that? Who cares about that? Yeah. People care about this. People who love sports. Yeah, I don't We have get a it. lot of basketball fans that listen to our podcast. I don't podcast. get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. NBA fans often tune in to American Timelines to get their NBA history news. Move on. Oh, boom. Somebody's in a bad mood today. Uh, Tuesday, I mean, Saturday, <laughs> Tuesday and Saturday. Two, two Saturday. Tuesdays and Saturdays in March. Saturday, March 10th, 1962. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got a new another number one song that lasts all the way to March 30th. Okay. A new number one song in the Billboard chart. I will play it and you guess what it is. Figure out what it is. And who sings it. Are you ready? I probably won't know who sings it. Oh, well. Oh, um, hey, baby. um, Yeah, that's right. It's called Hey, Baby? Yep. I don't remember who sings it, though. Hey, baby. Who sings it? Hey, baby. Bruce Channel. Yeah, I wouldn't know that. Bruce Channel. This song features a prominent riff from a well-known harmonica player, Delbert McClinton. And drums played by Ray Torres. Oh, that's a good one. Oh, man. And I, I accidentally deleted my... I had a whole big thing about Delbert McClinton. It is a good song. Be my girl. Do you know who Delbert McClinton is? No. Oh. Oh, he's he's a very famous guy. Okay. I know him. Other Um, other musicians on the record include Bob Jones, Billy Sanders on guitar, and Jim Rogers on bass. Mm -hmm. And dang it, I had something about Delbert McClinton, but I've since forgotten it. Well, well. Well, I guess it doesn't matter. Anyway, I don't remember. Okay. Must not have been that great. Probably was great missing out. I thought I copied and pasted, but I didn't. And then Saturday, that same day, mm-hmm. Saturday, March 10th, the Philly, the Phillies baseball club, the Philadelphia Phillies, mm-hmm. they left the Jack Tar Harrelson Hotel due to its refusal to admit black players. And they oh. moved to Rocky Point Motel, 20 miles outside Clearwater, Florida. Good for them. Yeah, the whole team moved yeah. and didn't just make the black players What leave. state? Florida. Florida. You don't think of Florida when you think of Jim Crow, though. No, but it's 1962. I know. It's, you know, it's... But I'm just saying. Yeah. 
No, everything in the everything South was, was yeah. yeah. Tuesday, March 13, 1962, a plan to attack American cities, a false flag, mm-hmm. to justify war with Cuba was approved by the Joint Chiefs of Staff in 1962. Oh. But it was rejected by President Kennedy. It was Operation Northwoods. So they were going to pretend? They were going to make up, they were going to do a, they were going to attack themselves. inside the USA. They were going to kill Americans. Oh my God. And, and blame say, it on Cuba to start a war. Oh my God. Operation Northwoods remained classified for 35 years. Operation Northwoods was a proposed false flag operation against the Cuban government that originated within the U.S., the U.S. Department of Defense, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the U.S. government in 1962. The, proposal, the proposals called for the CIA or other U.S. government operatives to commit acts of terrorism against American civilians and military targets, blaming them on the Cuban government. And you think that they've done using that? Using it to justify a war against Cuba. The possibilities detailed in the document included the possible assassination of Cuban immigrants, sinking boats of Cuban refugees on the high seas, hijacking planes, blowing up a U.S. ship, and orchestrating a violent terrorism in, the U- in two U.S. cities. Or, or just terrorism in U.S. cities, sorry. The proposals were rejected by JFK. That leads me to believe that, of course, they've done it. So that's why people <clears throat> think that the 9-11 was an inside job. And that's stuff. probably a, a big reason why, because they, they all agreed to do it yeah. before. Who's to say why, they wouldn't and, agree later? And we know Bush wanted a, a war with Iraq. Yeah, you know, and you know it's been proposed of before. Of course, they, the people that flew the planes weren't Iraqis. There's that. <clears throat> yeah. That had nothing to do with Iraq. Right. <coughs> But that um, so I would think if they were if they would have but there was an easy way to go in and get get Saddam Hussein you know he wanted mm-hmm. to get him so I hate to be a conspiracy theorist with stuff but this I didn't know this happened yeah that's when, awful when I, until I read this and that made me think easily right away same conclusion you did of course people thought nine eleven was an inside job yeah who knows how many anything any other attacks on the U S could it be what if you know I don't know I mean there hasn't been really there many. hasn't been very many but. That's the big one. Yeah, that it you is. Think of. So that's scary that that mm-hmm. happened. It is. Um, and that all those people agreed to do it. Mm, I know. To and kill it, Americans for for that. Ugh, it's just scary. It is. I agree. And Thursday, it's not funny. No, it's Let's not. Let's move on to something funnier. Thursday, March 15th, 1962. Mm-hmm. Ugh, this isn't funny either. A U.S. Lockheed Super H Constellation disappeared above the Pacific Ocean, and 107 people were killed. What is it? It's an aircraft, an airplane. Oh. The aircraft was transporting 93 Army men and three South Vietnamese from Travis Air Force Base, California, to Saigon, Vietnam. It was en route to Clark Air Base in the Philippines when it disappeared. Oh. It just disappeared. And so they don't know if people, what they happened to it? don't know what them? happened to it. Oh. And then Saturday on St. Patrick's Day, Saturday, March 17, 1962, the Chicago Journeyman Plumbers Union Local 130 began dumping containers of green dye into the Chicago River oh, to celebrate St. Patrick's Day. Ever since. For the first time. Yep. I love it when they do that. It's cool. It is. Yeah, and uh, it makes you want to drink beer. And it get does. shit-faced. It does. It makes Smoke you want to drink until you barf. <laughs> it does. And fight and punch everybody. Yep. Yep. We're green. Yeah, St. Patrick's like an idiot. If you've never been to Chicago on St. Patrick's Day, you gotta go be a part of it once. Yeah, it's nuts. Nobody can the police there's no rules, there's no laws anymore. Yeah. The police don't care. Mayhem. We found ourselves one year on a trolley, uh, driving around the streets of Chicago and yep. there's just people everywhere. And we actually, everyone was drinking. We were drinking off a they were keg. Being pulled, people were being pulled in yeah. the windows. And we stuff. started, we just started grabbing strangers off the street and pulling them into the trolley. To yep. them, whether they, they knew where they were or who they were or not. I was grabbing an old man's butt. Yep. Uh, everything. We're just grabbing people and, throw, and just pulling them in. Uh, <laughs> urinated. Uh, All right. In a, in a you don't, I don't think he wants everybody to know <laughs> yeah, that. He does. No. He does. Uh, listener, avid listener, <laughs> urinated in a cup. On a trolley. Okay, what's next? Boom. St. Patrick's Day in Chicago, y'all. Wednesday, March 21st, 1962. Mm-hmm. Glenn Bell. Do you know who Glenn Bell is? No. Well, he opened the first Taco Bell. 
He's the oh. first openly gay Taco Bell. What? He opened the first gay Taco Bell. No, no he did not. He opened the first Taco Bell in Downey, California. I love sauce. Wednesday, March 21st, that same day, mm-hmm. uh, of 1962, a female black bear was taken aboard a B-58 bomber out of Edwards Air Force Base in California and flown up to 35,000 feet at a supersonic speed of 850 miles per hour. Why? And ejected from the bomber in a spe- and ejected from the bomber in a specially made capsule. She landed safely and became the first living creature to survive a parachute jump from a plane. The poor flying thing. Flying faster than sound. The poor thing. Why would they do that? To teach it a lesson. I don't I don't think so. That's awful. Well, they had to test No, it. they didn't have to test it on poor thing. It was a black bear. I don't... What are you trying to say? Black bears are expendable? The black bears aren't as good as the white bears? Uh, it'll kill you. It sees you. So? You're in its... It's a threat. It, you're in its home. You're in my home. All right. Saturday, March 24th, 1962, Emil Griffith knocked out Benny Perret in the 12th round at Madison Square Garden. Okay. And 10 days later, mm-hmm. he died from... the Perret died from the beating. Oh, my. Referee Ruby Goldstein was blamed by many for not stopping the fight soon enough. Wow. That's a bummer. It is a bummer. And then Wednesday, March 28th, 1962, Terry Scott Zopinski was born in Pampano Beach, Florida. Who's that? He's the warlord, the pro wrestler, the oh, warlord. Oh, come on. You, Thursday, March 29th, 1962, Jack Parr hosted NBC's Tonight Show for the final time. Okay. Do you know who succeeded? Johnny Jack Carson. Parr? Yes. Boom. Well, yeah. You are a late show genius. No. Yeah, you are. Everybody knows that. Yeah, but you're you're real pretty. Oh, thanks, sweetheart. You're welcome. Friday, March 30th, 1962, Stanley Kirk Burrell was born. Okay. MC Hammer. Oh, God. Oh, God. MC Hammer's the best. His name's Stanley. Stanley MC Hammer, yeah. That's funny. That's not funny. That's awesome. He's the best. Stanley. Stanley. Mm-hmm. Stanley, how you doing? Name. I got it like that. Just okay. boom on Stanley, and you will be rewarded. And then March 31st, 1962, we got a new number one song on the Billboard charts. All right. Hit me. Oh, God. Connie Francis. Don't Break the Heart That Loves You by Connie Francis. Written by Benny Davis and Murray Mencher. This is so... Using the synonym... Such a throwback. Ted Murray. This kind of music is such a throwback. Like you can hear it on the jukebox at the soda Uh, shop. Yeah. The song was a success for two artists in two different genres. Connie Francis in the pop field in 62, and Margot Smith is a country version in 78. Yeah, it sounds like it could be country real easily. Oh, but here's the thing. There's some research I found about Connie Francis. Mm-hmm. Despite several interruptions in her career, she's still active as a recording artist. Did you know that? No. Um, but listen to the... I had to know, like, what were the interruptions? Uh, while appearing at the Westbury Music fair in new york in november of 1974 mm-hmm. she was raped at the jericho oh turnpike howard johnson's lodge in jericho new york God, uh, you always have to bring in rape and yeah no she nearly suffocated under the weight of a heavy mattress the culprit had thrown upon her she subsequently sued the motel chain for failing to provide adequate adequate security and reportedly won a 2.5 million judgment uh and that was huge at the time yeah um, Still not and they enough. never found the rapist. Oh my! Then in 1977, that's awful. She underwent nasal surgery and completely lost her voice. <gasps> oh! She went through several operations, and even when she got her voice back, she was forced to take vocal lessons. Although she had taken vocal lessons previously, this was the first time she had been asked to do so. And then in 1981, further tragedy struck Frances when her brother George. George Frensonero Jr., with whom she was very close, was murdered by mafia hitmen. Oh, my gosh. Despite this, she took up live performing again, even gracing the American Bandstand 30th anniversary special episode. 
Mm, wow. Appearing in the town where she had been raped. Isn't that terrible? Yes. Uh, her newfound success was short-lived, though, as she was then diagnosed with manic depression, which brought her career to a stop for four I guess four after all that years. shit happening to her, anybody would be depressed. She was committed to a total of 17 hospitals. Oh, she admitted that she thing. nearly committed suicide because she found hospitals to be very depressing. Yeah. But she recovered from that, too, and wrote a memoir uh, and made more albums. Well, there you go. So there you go, Connie Francis. So she may be happy now. Yep. Uh, Saturday, April 7th, 1962. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, Johnny Angel. Shelly Fabares. Do you know how to say her name? Fabrice, maybe? F-A-B-A-R-E-S. Johnny Angel. Yes. So it's very 60s, too. It was terrible. Mm-hmm. This song was originally recorded by both Lori Loman and Georgia Lee, but those two versions were not successful. It first became a popular hit when it was recorded by Shelley Fabares Fabares in the fall of 1961. She took it to number one in the Billboard Hot 100 chart when it was released in 62. Yes. Did you know that the Carpenters recorded this in 1973 as part of a medley of oldies? Oh, I bet that music is grating. Yeah, probably terrible. The Carpenters medley of oldies. Carpenter, yeah. <laughs> Awful, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then Monday, April 9th, 1962, was the 34th Academy Awards. Okay. Honoring the best in film for 1961. Held in Santa Monica Civic Auditorium in Santa, 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 Santa Monica, I would say that, Santa Monica, California, hosted by uh, Bob Hope. Bob Hope again. Oh, wow. <laughs> this is his 13th time Jeez. hosting. Legendary filmmaker Frederico, Frederico Fellini mm-hmm. received his first Best Director nomination for his film La Dolce Vita, though the movie itself failed to garner a nomination for Best Picture. I've never seen a Fellini movie, have you? Nope. Sophia Loren became the first thespian to win an acting Oscar for a non-English speaking role, as well as only the seventh person ever to win the Best Actress for a film with singular nomination. The singular With a singular nomination, only one. Only one award. That's the only award that was was up for or something. Okay. It wouldn't have, yeah, let me tell you on one the next time, who cares. And the shortest ever Oscar speech was given by Patty Duke in mm-hmm. 1962, age 16, and she was the youngest person to accept an Oscar in a competitive category for The Miracle Worker. Oh, her, she's so good in that. Her speech was, thank you, and walked off the stage. She's so good in that. Have you ever seen The Miracle Worker? No. It's it's a great movie. It really is. Is Don Cheadle in it? No, but... Then it's not a great movie. It is a great, great movie. I made Audrey watch it. She loved it. She wanted to watch it more than once. It's probably one of the best movies without Don Cheadle, but it's not a great movie. It's a great movie. No, no. It's the best movie without Don Cheadle, maybe, but it's not a great movie. It doesn't have... All right. All right. It doesn't have what you need to be a great movie, Don Cheadle. Okay. Tuesday, April 10th, 1962, Walter O'Malley, former owner of the Brooklyn L.A. Dodgers, was so determined to start the 1962 opening series in Dodger Stadium that he had people dry the playing field mm-hmm. with an F-84 jet engine after heavy rains threatened a relocation. What? How does that work? He pried an engine from an F-84 fighter jet to dry blast the wet, muddy grounds. The grass was still far from ideal days before the first game, and it took a nice paint job mm-hmm. to make it look fresh and healthy. It painted the field? Yeah, Hollywood director Mervyn Le- Leroy uh, suggested to paint the field to cover up the Do they normally green. do that? I think they do that sometimes. They do? Doesn't it get all over everybody? Yep. Yeah. Uh, but when the Dodgers and the Reds showed up and 52,000 fans showed up for the inaugural game at Dodger Stadium, a few other embarrassing details were exposed of the new stadium. There were no drinking fountains, no batting cage, no electrical outlets in the clubhouse. Oh, geez. Directional signs were misspelled, and someone pointed out that the foul poles were in the foul territory, which is which seems 
which doesn't make sense because they're supposed to be outside of foul territory, so you can tell when a foul ball is foul. Jeez. The Dodgers didn't get around to writing that wrong until the next season when the field was adjusted to fall into the Somebody got fired. So a lot of people probably got fired for that. Mm -hmm. You fired. Tuesday, that same wait, Tuesday, that same day, April tenth, nineteen sixty two, ex Beatles Stuart Sutcliffe died of a brain hemorrhage in Hamburg. Oh, that's sad. It is sad. He must have been young. Yeah, I think he was pretty young. It was like a he didn't know what was wrong with him. He went to the doctor and they said, Oh, you're fine. And then oh. he died and later. He died. Like he they didn't it was like bad doctors there, I guess, in Hamburg at the time or something. And then we move on to the next number one song by Elvis Presley. Mm-hmm. April 21st, 1962. Good luck, Charm. Yep. Yep. Elvis Presley takes over the number one spot. This is one of those oldies that I like, the jukebox ones. This song was written by Aaron Schroeder and Wally Gold and recorded in the RCA Studio B in Nashville, Tennessee on October 15, 1961. It completed its second hat trick of chart-topping singles in the UK, and Presley is joined vocally on the chorus by... Jordan Ayer's first tenor, Gordon Stoker. Did you know that? Mm-mm. Well, now you do. Now, the more I know. And Art Garfunkel re-recorded this song. Oh, he did? In 1997. Yeah, I can't imagine that being any good. Everything Art Garfunkel touches turns to gold. Because he's Art motherfucking Garfunkel. All right. What? What are you mad about? Tuesday, May 1st, 1962, mm-hmm. the Hulk first appeared in The Incredible Hulk number one. Oh, that late? I thought May he 1962. was longer than that. Nope. Written by writer-editor Stan Lee, penciled and co-plotted by Jack Kirby, and inked by Paul Reinman. Nobody cares about these people. Stan Lee cites his influence of making Hulk from Frankenstein mm-hmm. and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde together. Oh, you know, I could like see Mr. that. Hyde, yeah. Uh, he's, Stan Lee said, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for the Frankenstein monster. No one could ever convince me that he was the bad guy. You well, know, in the in the original novel, he's not. He never wanted to hurt anyone. He merely groped his torturous way through a second life, trying to defend himself, trying to come to terms with those who sought to destroy in the In the novel, he's the protagonist in and, Mary Shelley's novel. And then he said, I decided I might as well borrow him, borrow from Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde as well. Our protagonist would constantly change from his normal identity to a superhuman alter ego and back again. And did you know at the beginning, he was, he, Stanley made him gray. He wanted Hulk to be gray. Oh, But really? every time they made it, they couldn't match up the colors, right? They couldn't get mm-hmm. the colors, and sometimes it would be green and, and all that. So he he decided, after he saw the first one, he looked kind of green. Mm-hmm. And he just said, oh, let's just change it to green. Oh, that's interesting. And... Stanley gave his name. His name was Bruce Banner, mm-hmm. but he misremembered it a few times in the comic and kept referring to him as Bob Banner. Oh, so he had to change his official name to Robert Bruce Banner. So the, some of those were probably expensive. Those comic, well, like a gray where he's gray in it. Yeah, and I mean, stuff. no, I think they all printed that way. But it's just when they did it, like from page to page, oh. I think they oh. couldn't get the color. And then they turn. Then they the nerds will school us on this that they they end up coming up with a gray hulk later that was a different hulk or some shit and there's some kind of reason for the different colors and and nerds hmm. only stupid nerds all right now don't that. do that don't just start kidding it. we love you nerds nerds love american timelines tuesday may 1st 1962 a memo from the cia briefing for attorney general robert kennedy revealed that one hundred and fifty thousand dollars was was offered to the u.s mob for the assassination of fidel castro Oh, wow. But, but the mob insisted on doing the job at no charge. They didn't want to get paid to do no, it? No, they wanted to do it without getting paid. But they found this memo later. And who was it from? This memo was found in 1997. Who was it from? 
General Robert Kennedy. Oh, okay. Attorney General, Attorney General Robert Kennedy. So he made he wrote a memo to the mob to assassinate Castro. A memo from the CIA briefing for Attorney General Robert Kennedy revealed that one hundred fifty thousand dollars was offered to the U.S. mob. Uh, oh, so I don't I, know who offered it. Oh, that's what I'm asking. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, you have to do some research. Yeah. We don't have time. We got to. We got to listen. We got to listen to the next number one song yep, on the Billboard chart because May fifth, nineteen sixty two, mm-hmm. the Shirelles take over. You know what song? Uh, we already did Mr. Postman, didn't we? Yep. Oh, Soldier Boy. This is a good one too. Yep, the Shirelles Soldier Boy lasted from May fifth to May twenty fifth. It's funny they all sing together. There's not like it's not like the Supremes where Diana Ross is singing most of it and the girls are doing the backup. Or like Destiny's Child or Beyonce's the Queen of mm-hmm. Everything. Yeah. Saturday, May nineteenth, nineteen sixty two, Marilyn Monroe sang Happy Birthday to President Kennedy That's right. at Madison Square Garden while wearing a dress described as skin and beads. Yeah, it was. In nineteen ninety nine the dress sold for $1.15 million at Christie's Auction House. Wow. In 26, I wonder where it is now. In 2016, the dress sold for nearly $5 million at a Los Angeles auction to Ripley's Believe It or Not. That's, oh. what it, that's where it is now. In the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum? Yep. Oh, that's kind of anticlimactic. Are you mad at me about it? A little bit. You want to fight about it? And then on May 26, 1962, we have another number one song on the Billboard charts. Mm-hmm. Stranger on the Shore by Acker Bilk. <laughs> what? Is this an instrumental, perhaps? This is a piece for the clarinet written by Acker Bilk <laughs> for his young daughter and originally named Jenny after her. Oh, that's sweet. It was subsequently used as a theme for a tune of a BBC drama, TV drama serial for young people, Stranger on the Shore. Oh, so that's where it came from. Yeah. In May 1969, the crew of Apollo 10 took this song on their mission to the moon. Gene Cernan, a member of the crew, included the tune on a cassette tape used in the command module of the Apollo spacecraft. Yeah, I'm not a fan of clarinet music. Acker Bilk. Acker. Yeah. <laughs> he uh, he had a very distinctive appearance with a, a goatee, a bowler hat, and a striped waistcoat. Oh, so you have some style going and on. all the ladies wanted to get with Acker Bilk, y'all. Okay. Acker Bilk, y'all. Acker, Acker Bilk, y'all. What's next? Acker Bilk, motherfucker. Saturday, May 27, 1962. The Centralia Mine Fire started. You know what the Centralia Mine Fire is? It is? That, is it that underground fire that's been going for like 50 years? It's still going, Yes. Yeah. It started on May 27, 1962. It's a coal seam fire. That has been burning underneath the borough of Centralia, Pennsylvania, since at least this time. Yeah. The fire is suspected to be from a deliberate burning of trash in a former strip mine, igniting a coal seam. The fire is burning in underground coal mines at depths of up to to 300 feet. Jesus. Over an eight-mile stretch of 3,700 acres. At its current rate, it could continue to burn for over 250 years. Well, and, and the ground is real hot. Like, yeah. people had to move and oh, stuff. the town had to be abandoned. Yeah. The population dwindled from about 1,400 to Larry. <laughs> At the time of the fires. Yep. 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 But I, I remember, I can't remember. Most if I, of the buildings have been leveled. Larry still insists on staying there. But, like, kids would be playing outside and fall in a hole, and it would be, like, hot that's, I, uh, that's not a good story. That's but pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I, I did hear something about this, though. It'd be like, like hot and stuff. It was hot. It was really hot. Um, this next thing I have is in June 
Yes. Uh, but I just put it at the beginning of June because I don't have exactly when in June it happened. I just know it happened in June. Okay. But uh, sometime in June, uh, a, a lady named Mimi Alford mm-hmm. started uh, a relationship with JFK. Okay. While she was a 19-year-old intern in the White House press office. Oh. Uh, according to a New York Post, the New York Post, which ob- obtained a copy of a memoir, the affair began in the summer of 1962, June 1962, on the fourth day of Mimi Alford's internship. Can you imagine being the person that had an affair with JFK? Yeah, it started when they had an encounter in the White House swimming pool. Oh, boy. That night, Mimi Alford says she lost her virginity to the president. Oh, my God. In First Lady Jackie Kennedy's bedroom. The oh, aff- man. The, f- the affair was revealed in 2003 when Kennedy biographer Robert Dalek wrote an, uh, an unfinished life about an unnamed intern who allegedly, allegedly had a relationship with the late president. Uh, Alford's Once Upon a Secret... My affair with President JFK and its aftermath was released on February eight, February eighth, twenty twelve. She wrote it finally in twenty twelve. She was so an old she, lady, yeah. But she was uh, she was sixty nine and a grandmother and a retired church administrator uh, when she wrote that. Oh my god! But all through her life, she would tell people that she had an affair with JFK, and nobody ever nobody be- believed nobody her. Nobody believed her until this that book came out that said there was an unnamed intern. And oh she wrote my her gosh! Book. Can you imagine? Isn't that crazy? Can you imagine being that person to say that? No, yeah, and lose your virginity to to him JFK swimming with of all and, people. And you know she was probably smoking hot. Yeah, she's a young nineteen-year-old. He was yeah. smoking hot, right? Ladies, no, love. I no, he's not. Is it just the power? Power, like? yeah. I mean, he was younger than all the other old. That's true. Trolls that are in politics, mm-hmm. I guess. So, and then sometimes made young, a difference young equals attractive to people's minds and powerful like that's mm-hmm. pretty crazy and then on june 2nd 1962 we have another no, new number one song on the billboard charts poor acker bilk can't stay there forever no let's hope not not when you got ray charles creeping about oh. bro can't mess with ray charles i can't stop loving you that's right this is a good one too. Man, he's got such a great he's voice. He's so good. He's so cool. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Ray Charles is the best. I think I'm gonna go listen to him in my Prius for the next month. <laughs> and that brings us, Amy, to oh, yeah. Monday, June eleventh, nineteen sixty-two, and I understand. Yes. I understand not to any pre-planning uh, between us, but I understand. I just have a feeling that you might have a little something to share with us on June eleventh, nineteen sixty-two. I do. Is it that James Brown and the Famous Flames were on American Bandstand? No, because they were. It, that's not what I was going to say, though. No, it's not. Okay. I am going to talk about the famous escape from Alcatraz. Ooh. Everybody's been asking us, when are you going to do the Alcatraz episode? And I was always saying, when it comes up in the year we're doing, jackass. So Alcatraz, as you know, was a prison island. It was a prison island. Don't tell our listeners. It was um, known as escape proof. Because it, oh yeah, you was on an island. You couldn't get out of there. There was shark infested. Oh yeah, freezing waters. Um, okay, so let's first go over the the folks involved here. Let me crack open a new beer. Yeah. You wanna grab take me a, one another? Take a minute. Can you reach one? Or maybe I can. There you go. Let me crack open a delicious hop slam, a Bell's hop slam. I only have a couple left. This came out in January. All right. Can I start? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. So let's start by talking about the people that are involved. Okay. Who were the people involved? Um, the first guy was Frank Lee Morris. No, he's a Frank Lee Morris is a prisoner or is he a prison he's a guard? Prisoner. Is he a he's a prisoner. Warden? He's he was prisoner. born in Washington, D.C. Okay. He was abandoned by his mother and father during his childhood and orphaned at age 11. You know, that tells you. Don't abandon your kids. Don't and end up escaping yeah. from Alcatraz. And he spent most of his uh, young years in foster homes. Poor guy. He was convicted of his first crime at age 13. Mm. And by his late teens, he'd been arrested for crimes ranging from narcotics possession to armed robbery. He spent most of his early years in jail serving lunch to prisoners. 
Oh, okay. Well, that was that's something. As he got older, he was arrested for grand larceny in Miami Beach for stealing cars and armed robbery. Morris reportedly ranked in the top 2% of the general population in, in intelligence. Really? As measured by IQ testing, displaying an IQ of 133. Wow, I didn't know they tested their intelligence. Yep. He served time in Florida and Georgia, then escaped from the Louisiana State Penitentiary while serving 10 years for bank robbery. He escaped from that prison? Mm-hmm. Oh, he, he escaped. He was re- recaptured a year later while committing a burglary and sent to Alcatraz on January 20th, 1960, as inmate number AZ-1441. Really? So, he escaped okay. before? That's crazy. So then there was John and Clarence Anglin. Okay. The Anglin brothers... Oh, they're brothers. ...were born into a family of 13 children in Georgia... So, here's another warning. Yep. Don't have more than 12 kids. Their parents, George Robert Anglin and Rachel Van Miller Anglin, were seasonal farmers. Is it E-N-G-L-U-N-D? A-N-G-L-I-N. Oh, Anglin. Anglin. So, not Robert Anglin who played Freddy Krueger. No. They were seasonal farm workers. Oh, that's the other thing. Never trust seasonal farm workers. In the early 1940s, they moved the family to Ruskin, Florida. Okay. 20 miles south of Tampa, where the truck... Where the truck farms and tomato fields provided a more reliable source of income. That's a terrible area. (laughs) Just kidding. Shout out to Jim Jaco from Bradenton. So John and Clarence were reportedly inseparable as youngsters. Yeah. They became skilled swimmers and amazed their siblings by swimming in the frigid waters of Lake Michigan as ice still floated on its surface. Wow. That's bold. Clarence Anglin was known to have a tattoo of Zona on his left wrist and one of Nita on his right upper arm. And who are those people? Uh, Who knows? Well, let's do a little extra research. If you don't want to do the research, then... The brothers worked as farmers, Zona and Nita. Nita. Those are... It's probably just girls that he slept with or something. Oh, it definitely comes up. Oh, there's pictures of it. So... The, anyway, go ahead. The brothers worked as farmers and laborers. Clarence was first caught breaking into a service station when he was 14. So they began ro- robbing banks as a team in the early 50s. Okay. Usually targets that were closed to ensure no one got injured. They claimed that they used a weapon only once during a bank heist and was a toy gun. Okay. They were arrested in 1958 after robbing the Bank of Columbia in Columbia, Alabama. Okay. They both received 15 to 20 year sentences, which they served in Florida State Prison, Leavenworth, then Atlanta Penitentiary. After repeated failed attempts to escape from the Atlanta facility, they were transferred to Alcatraz. Okay, so they were there because, all three of these guys were there because of earlier attempts to to escape. escape. That's right. We got to put them in the escape free prison. Then there was Alan West. That was another guy? Yeah, he was born in New York City. He was in prison for car theft in 55, oh. first at Atlanta Penitentiary, then at Florida State Penitentiary. I thought car theft was legal in New York. It's weird. Hmm. After an unsuccessful escape attempt from the Florida facility, he was transferred to Alcatraz in 57. Okay. When West was transferred to Alcatraz, he was 28 years old and had the education of an eighth grader. Oh, so not. Yes. Very he was arrested over 20 times throughout his lifetime. Poor fella. Okay. So the four inmates are no sooner assigned adjacent cells in December of 61. What? Then they began formulating the escape plan together. Hey, let's put all the escapees together. That that could be fine. The, it was always under the leadership of Morris, who is the mastermind and kind of the orchestrator of the plot. So Morris, just like Mo is the leader of the Three Stooges, Morris is the leader of these Alcatraz guys. Okay. Right? That's a good way to think of it. So it helped to ensure their mutual trust that they already knew each other from their time in Atlanta prison years before. Okay. Over the subsequent six months, they widened the ventilation ducts beneath their sinks using discarded saw blades found on the prison grounds, metal spoons smuggled from the mess hall, and an electric drill improvised from the motor of a vacuum cleaner. Hey, hey, what should we do with these old saw blades? Ah, just leave them on the prison grounds. Nothing bad could happen. The men concealed the progress of their holes with walls of painted cardboard, and the noise of their work with was with the louder noises of Morris's accordion on top of the ambient <laughs> din of music hour. I thought it was just be coughing, but no, it was getting an accordion. It was playing the accordion. You can't stop me from playing my accordion. That's right. I know it sounds terrible, but I'm going to keep playing it. So once the holes were wide enough to pass through... They That's would so nightly great. access the utility corridor left unguarded directly behind their cell's tier and cl- 
climbed to the vacant top level of the cell block where they set up a workshop, unbeknownst to prison staff. Nice. So they, they would do this own, all the time. They made their own workshop. They did. They, they would go in the middle of the night. They would go through yeah. the hole and go to the workshop. Yeah. Um, they took 50, over 50 raincoats and other stolen and donated materials. They constructed life preservers based off a design one of them chanced to find in popular mechanics. In the workshop? As well as a 6 by 14 foot rubber raft, the seams carefully stitched by hand and sealed by the steam pipe's heat. Sealed by the steam. Sealed by the, sorry. Genius. Having manufactured the raft, they inflated it with a concertina ingeniously rigged to serve as bellows and furnished the necessary paddles from scrap wood and pilfered screws. Oh, my goodness. Finally, they climbed up a ventilation shaft bound for the roof and finding a porous fan grill in the way removed the rivets holding it in place. They concealed their absence while working outside their cells and after the escape itself by sculpting dummy heads from a homemade paper mache-like mixture of soap, toothpaste, concrete dust, and toilet paper. Oh, my goodness. And they gave them realistic appearance with paint from the maintenance shop and hair from the barber shop floor. And there's pictures of the dummy heads you can see. Really? Mm-hmm. With dummy, Alca, what do you just Google, Alcatraz dummy heads? Mm-hmm. With towels and clothing piled under the blankets in their bunks and dummy heads positioned on the pillows, they appeared to be sleeping. Oh, those don't look real at all, those dummy heads. Well, but if it was from far under away a blanket dark, yeah. and you just saw the hair sticking out. Um, oh, it's creepy. So on, on the night of June 11th, 1962, with all the preparations in place, the it men does, began yeah, their escape. In the bed. June 11th, 1962? Mm-hmm. You mean the same day? As I said, James Brown was on American Bandstand, but at the same time that Surfside 6 was on ABC, Ken, Dave, and Sandy are three hip private detectives living on and working out of a a houseboat in Miami, Florida. That's right. A yacht belonging to socialite Daphne is anchored next to their houseboat. While not pursuing criminals, they spend time at the Fountain Bay Hotel chasing Cha-Cha, who works as an entertainer at the Boom Boom Room. I don't know about it. Starring Van Williams, Lee Patterson, Margaret Sierra. That was on? That, same that night? was the same night that wow, was on. That they started they escaped. Yes. So um they the men begin their escape. However, the cement employed to shore up crumbling concrete around West's vent had hardened. Wait, say say that again. The cement employed. that was was employed to shore up the crumbling concrete around his vent had hardened okay diminishing the hole in size and fixing the grill in place by the time he managed to remove the grill and rewiden the hole the others had already left oh, as soon so as all were going to meet up and as he was soon stuck. to discover he busted out of the prison roof only to return to a cell around sunrise and go to sleep because he couldn't get out in time mm-hmm. he went on to cooperate fully with investigators and gave them a detailed description of the escape plan in consequence of which he was not punished for his role in it ah oh. Oh, what a dick. So, from the service corridor, Morris and the Anglins climbed the ventilation shaft to the roof. Guards heard a loud crash as they broke out of the shaft, but since nothing further was heard, the source of the noise was not investigated. Huh. Hauling their gear with them, they descended 50 feet to the ground by sliding down a kitchen vent pipe. Okay. Then climbed two 12-foot barbed wire perimeter fences. At the northeast shoreline near the power plant... It was a blind spot in the prison's network of searchlights and gun towers. How did they figure that out? I don't know. They inflated their raft with a concertina. Wait, so they climbed over a barbed wire? Yeah. So they're covered in blood? I don't know. At some time after 10 p.m., investigators estimated they boarded the raft, launched it, and departed toward their objective, which was Angel Island, two miles to the north. The escape was not discovered until the morning of June 12th, 1962. Oh, June 12th. That's the same day that President JFK accepts an honorary degree from Yale and the same day that The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis was on. On this episode, bully Butch Bumgarner is due into town on the noon bus and Mm -hmm. has a score to settle with Dobie. Oh, boy. Will Dobie muster the courage to face the man who hates him or lie a coward in his grave? Meanwhile... Maynard G. Krebs gets his wiener stuck in Mr. Kumbi's no, gas can. No, that did not happen. Yeah, it did. Nope. You okay. Have no proof. You're playing jokes. Okay. Um, 
so yes, that was when the escape was discovered was that morning oh. because of the dummy heads. Same day his wiener was stuck in the gas. Yes. Wow, they found the dummy heads. At the time of the escape, Warden Olin G. Blackwell was on vacation and didn't believe the men could have survived the waters and make it to shore. So he assumed they were dead. Yes. In a joint effort, multiple military and law enforcement agencies conducted an extensive air, sea, and land search oh, you know over the next you know they had them helicopters days. out there and people were barking. That's right. On June 14th... Oh, the same day that Albert DeSalvo, better known as the Boston Strangler, murders Anna Slessers, his first victim? Which we will hear more about in a future episode. Oh, we will. Yeah. I wonder why. I wonder why, too. Some murderous-obsessed lady. Um, yes, on June 14th, the Coast Guard picked up a paddle floating about 200 yards off the southern shore of Angel Island. Oh. On the same day and in the same general location, workers on another boat found a wallet wrapped in plastic, complete with names, addresses, and photos of the Anglin's friends and relatives. Really? Yes. Huh, so they assumed they were dead. Yeah. On June 21st, shreds of raincoat material believed to be remnants of the raft were found on a beach not far from the Golden Gate Bridge. Oh, really? The following day, a prison boat picked up a deflated life jacket made from the same material 50, 50 yards off the Alcatraz Island. Huh. No other physical evidence of the men's fate was ever found. Ever? Never? Ever. What? According to the final FBI report, the escapee's raft was never recovered. Really? But it, they found pieces of it pieces of it washed up. Yeah. The FBI sure. officials were at least publicly all but positive the men had drowned. And they said, you know, that... The personal effects were the only belongings they had, and the men would have drowned before leaving them behind. Um, but when they looked for bodies, they couldn't find any. Uh, Patrick Mahoney, who ran the launch that traveled between Alcatraz and the mainland, had some doubts that the men perished, saying, I felt they didn't make it, but I thought we'd find a body. We didn't find a body. And um, so basically, yeah, they they investigate and everything, um, but... They don't find any bodies. Huh. Um, We never know. There's no more information. During the investigation, Robert Chechi, a San Francisco police officer, said that at 1 a.m. on the morning of June 12th, he saw an illegal boat in the bay near Alcatraz. Yeah. A few minutes later, the boat left heading under the Golden Gate Bridge, and that led to speculation that prisoners might have enlisted outside Confederates to pick up somebody to get them. Yeah. Um, According to FBI reports, on July 17th, 1962... The same day that the Senate rejects Medicare for the aged and George Carlin was on talent scouts on CBS? Yes, that day. A month, this is a month after the escape. Yeah? A Norwegian ship spotted a body floating in the ocean 15 nautical miles from the Golden Gate Bridge. Whoa. The ship did not retrieve the body and did not report the sighting until October. What? What? Yeah. San Francisco coroner cast doubts on the speculation that could have, have that it could have been one of the escapees, saying it was improbable that a body would still be floating on the surface of the ocean after more than a month. Yeah, that's true. And Norwegians don't know what the hell they're talking about. Yeah, and there was somebody who had recently committed suicide by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. They thought that oh, could be that person. Yeah, there was probably ton- tons of people that do that. Oh yeah, that's like the most suicidable place apparently. So on December sixteenth, nineteen sixty-two, do you have December sixteenth? You didn't give me that. I'm date. sorry. Okay, um, inmate John Paul Scott successfully yeah. swam a distance of two point seven nautical miles from Alcatraz to Fort Point at the southern end of the Golden Gate Bridge. Wait, he escaped? Yeah, he successfully did. Oh, another guy escaped in in what year? December 16th, 1962. Oh, that same year another guy escaped? Yeah, he successfully swam. Oh, my God. But then he got um, caught. He, he he was suffering from hypothermia and exhaustion they when he arrived. he arrived. So, yeah, he went to the hospital and then returned to Alcatraz. And that was the only proven case of an Alcatraz inmate reaching the shore by swimming. Really? His escape undertaken in slightly more unfavorable conditions than Morrison and the Anglins faced and using a means of flotation that was far inferior to the rafts constructed by Morrison Anglins. Yeah, they didn't have, he didn't have a he had workshop. Wa- he had water wings is what he used. Oh, water wings, little baby water wings, yep. inflatable wings. And so because of, the, because of the penitentiary cost much more to operate than other prisons, and half a century of saltwater saturation had severely eroded the building, the Attorney General Robert Kennedy ordered the penitentiary closed on March 21st, 1963. Oh, that's the same day that singer and actress Barbara Streisand married actor Elliot Gould. Oh, I forgot she was married to Elliot Gould. Elliot Gould, y'all, Don McAllister reminds me of that every day. (laughs) 
Um, and that's also the same day that on Leave It to Beaver, mm-hmm. June isn't sure it's a good idea when eccentric Uncle Billy comes to stay with the boys while she and Ward spend the weekend at the lake with friends. Mm-hmm. But when Beaver is caught trying to sneak his friend Gilbert through the back door of the movie theater, he's glad that it's his good-natured uncle who gets the call from the theater manager, not his parents. Also, Wally brings home a prostitute dripping with chlamydia. No, that last part didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, it did. No. Yeah. All right. Okay, you're real proud of yourself. I am. Wally was really in a, in a really, really rough All right, ladies. so the FBI finally closes its file. So they, yeah, they closed the after whole... After 17 yeah. years. Yeah. Their official finding was that the prisoners most likely drowned in the waters of the bay while attempting to reach Angel Island. Because the guys never turned up. Yes, because there was strong ocean currents and cold water... They cited the remnants found of the raft Sharks. as well as the personal effects of the men as evidence. Yeah. Yep. Um, however, however, uh oh, the There's FBI did twist. hand the investigation over to the U.S. Marshals, who have not closed theirs. Oh, really? So Tommy Lee Jones. There's an active investigation still. That's right. Really. Um. Since the ostensible escape of the three men, yeah. there have been many a sighting of them reported Ooh, as sightings. well as leads to whereabouts. A day after the escape, yeah. a man claiming to be John Anglin had called a lawyer, Eugenia McGowan, in San Francisco to arrange a meeting with the U.S. Marshal's office. Okay. When McGowan refused, the caller terminated the phone call, but the FBI said that dismissed that was a prank. They, they thought, thought it was a prank. It, it might have a been prank. a prank. Because why would he say it's him? In January of 1965, the FBI investigated a rumor that Clarence Anglin was living in Brazil. Oh. It was considered so significant, the agents were dispatched to South America to find him. Really? A male tipster called the Bureau in 67, claiming to have been at school with Morris and having known him for 30 years. Ooh. He said he had bumped into him in Maryland and described him as having a small beard and a mustache, but refused to give further details. Oh, I bet that was him. Family members of the Anglin brothers occasionally received many unsigned postcards and messages over the years. Really? Once a card came signed Jerry and another Jerry and Joe. The family also produced a Christmas pr- produced a Christmas card purportedly received in the family mailbox in 1962 saying, To Mother from John, Merry Christmas. I bet they are alive. Another of the Anglin's 11 siblings, Robert, also said that sometimes the phone would ring and all that could be heard was breathing on the other end. Yep. Um, there, that's them. The mother of the Anglin brothers received flowers anonymously every Mother's Day until her death in 73. Oh, sweet. And two very tall, unusual women in heavy makeup were reported to have attended the funeral before disappearing. <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely true. That's Can great. you imagine? Or what if it was just these poor women and everybody assumed and everybody, they were men in drag? <laughs> those two are men. Yeah. Like, Wait a minute. Everybody always says that about me. I love that. Federal officials say that in the mid to late 60s and into the 70s, there were six or seven sightings reported of the Anglin brothers. I was picturing, I was picturing two obvious men like with right. terrible dress, like yeah. a terrible wig, like the, a wig as bad as those dummy heads looked like. Yes, like lipstick. Just they didn't know how to put it on. So it's all oh, I'm sure. I'm like, sure of it. Yeah. Um. So like when the kids in hall dresses women. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I remember that. Um, so there were six or seven sightings reported of the Anglin brothers, all in North Florida or Georgia. Okay. Um, also in 1989, when the father of the Anglin brothers died, two strangers in beards showed up at the funeral home. Yeah. According to Robert, they stood in front of the casket looking at the body a few minutes. They wept, then they walked out. Oh, that's them. In 1989, a woman who only identified herself as Kathy called Unsolved, the Unsolved Mysteries tip line. Because really? Unsolved Mysteries had a, a show yeah. about this. Yeah, oh, about them, yeah. And she said she recognized a photo of Clarence Anglin as a man who lived on a farm near Mariana, Florida. Really? The brothers also were linked to the area by a woman who recognized a photo of Clarence Anglin and said he lived near Mariana. She correctly identified his eye color, height, and other physical features. Another witness identified a sketch of Frank Morris saying it bore a striking resemblance to a man she had seen in the area. Oh, my goodness. And Deputy U.S. Marshal Michael Dyke told NPR in 2009 he still receives leads on a regular basis. Really? Um, so uh, yeah, unsolved mysteries had it. They they tried to replicate. There's there's all these different shows that would have something where they try to replicate. Wait, co- what? Did anything happen in 1979? Hmm. You give me December 31st, 1979. Oh, it might still be something. Oh, do you have more? Almost done. 
No, I must have skipped the. I must have skipped that. The uh, saying the whole date. Sorry, that babe. Sucks because I really had a good one for that. Oh, date. sorry, babe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> can I just say it? What is it? The same time on WKRP in Cincinnati. Les Nesman and Herb Tarlick, 69. No. Cartwheels. That didn't happen. <laughs> I had the whole thing. You, you haven't even Johnny been listening. You've been waiting for us to be able to say that. When Johnny wakes up in the middle of the night and thinks he hears somebody, but he's determined that God is speaking to him. Also, Les Nesman and Herb Tarlick, 69, while doing cartwheels. All right. <laughs> Sorry. So, I just want to say that so bad. In 1993. Yeah. A former Alcatraz inmate named Thomas Kent told America's Most Wanted Ooh. that he had helped plan the escape and really? claimed to have provided significant new leads to investigators. He was not a prisoner, though, right? He was a... No, he yeah, he was. He was oh, an inmate. He was an inmate. It was a prisoner, inmate. which is a prisoner. He oh, said yeah, that... Sorry, I'm not really listening. I'm just I know, really... you're waiting for your 69 jokes. <laughs> Herb Tarlick and Les Nesman. All right, he said that Clarence Anglin's girlfriend had agreed to meet the men on the shore and drive them to Mexico. Okay. Um, yeah, so I know... I, I'm convinced 100% they escaped. Now, at the beginning, you were convinced that they died. Yeah, but now... I think that you're just going back. You're waffling. You're uh, a waffler. I am a waffler, but you know, something with the... Something around the time when uh, Les Desmond and Herb Tarlick got together, yeah. that made me start to believe, yes, the true love really exists, and then the funeral things really yes. sealed it for me. Yeah, the two women. Yeah, the two women and the, the bearded guys mm -hmm. crying. Because mm -hmm. why would they be crying? Right. And why would Les Nesman and Herb Tarlick have a sexual relationship? That's true. <laughs> but they did. So, <laughs> I um, know it. there was uh, a man named John Leroy Kelly who was investigated and he dictated an extended deathbed confession to his nurse. Really? In um, 1993. He claimed that he and his partner picked up Morris and the Anglins from the bay in, in a boat and transported them to the Seattle, Washington area. Ah. Later, under the guise of transporting the three escaped convicts to Canada, Kelly and his partner double-crossed and murdered the escapees to get the $40,000 their families had collected for them. Oh, so... Kelly, feel, then feeling a lifelong guilt over his part, felt obliged to confess, which he did to a priest and to his nurse. Oh, so he murdered them, like, right away? Yeah. So they wouldn't have gone to those funerals then. Yeah, it wouldn't have been them. Huh. Um, so maybe it was just two very tall ladies. Rod Roderick and others found a location in Seattle where Kelly said the three escapees were buried. A dig at the site failed to turn up any bones. So maybe all that's bullshit. It could be. Um, he could have been just losing his mind if he huh. was dying. Yeah, nobody will ever know any of this. So... Um, if to, uh, t last thing, a 2015 History Channel documentary presented further circumstantial evidence. Um, really? They had Christmas cards containing the Anglin's handwriting that they showed and allegedly received by family members for three years after the escape. Well, even, the handwriting was... the other guy said he killed him right away. Yeah, this is a different show. Okay. While the handwriting was verified as the Anglins, none of the envelopes contained a postmarked stamp, so experts could not determine when they had been delivered, so that... Huh. But that's what the family said. Okay. Um, they produced photos that they said were the men standing next to a um, large termite mound in Brazil, in a Brazilian farm. Okay. And then forensic experts were hired by the History Channel that confirmed that the photos were taken in 1975 and asserted that the two men were more than likely the Anglins. Um, uh, the photo of them with a... Termites? In the termite mound, yeah. What what's the significance of the? I don't think termites. They're just standing next to one, is what it said. Um. So the story also presented an alternative escape theory. Uh, the escapees in this theory didn't use the raft to cross the bay, but instead paddle around the island to the boat dock, where they then escaped by attaching a length of an electrical cord to the rudder of a prison ferry boat that departed the island shortly after midnight and were towed along behind it as it sailed to the mainland. Um, that was another alternative kind of escape theory. In 2018, the FBI confirmed that the existence of a letter allegedly written by John Anglin had forced them to reopen the investigation into the case. Really? 2018. The author of the letter received by the San Francisco Police Department in 2013 
claims that Frank Morris died in 2008 and was buried in Alexandria under a different name, and Clarence Anglin died in 2011. He further said he had cancer and wanted to strike a deal with the FBI, offering to be locked up again for a year in exchange for medical care. Really? When analyzed for a link to Anglin, it was deemed inconclusive. Why would anybody write that? I know. Other, otherwise. The U.S. Marshal's Office is still investigating this case, which will remain open on all three escapees until their 100th birthdays. And that's the story of the escape from Alcatraz. That's exciting. I love it when we don't know the answer. And, we're, and it's, yeah. But I, don't you want to know? I want to know, but here's the... Here's, Age progression or something? No, it's a picture of the... The guys from the termite mound, and it's compared. Oh, they're comparing the. To, do they look like them? I guess age progressions or something, but no, it's so blurry. They just look like two random. Can you imagine if, it, if they are just if you were one of those guys and everybody starts saying you were some escaped convict from yeah. 1962? Yeah, a picture of me and it says I'm that guy. Yeah, that's like the Elvis sightings. You know, you're you're just some old fat man. I want to. I actually, you've done such a good job oh yeah that i actually want to watch one of these documentaries now which one any of those the history channel the most recent one maybe i want to watch info i want to watch stuff about this this is my kind of story oh uh, escape from alcatraz it's not just murders it's not just raping right it's like a mystery it's a mystery and it's an adventure possibly and we don't know and yeah i want to learn more about I wanna it i do some more research i'm going to become an expert Good. I I like that. I'll go along well, with you. Well, or I can just watch the WWE. Network. No, that just, <laughs> just poisons watching. your mind. Well, it's garbage. But the Nitro, the Monday Night Wars between Monday Nitro and, and no, Monday we're Mar, not going to talk about exciting. it anymore. Well, Macho Man Randy Savage we get out of joined here, Chuck the NWO. Barry. Oh yeah, we better get out of here, Chuck Berry. Our time is up. Yes. Thank you guys for listening. Oh my God. Uh, do us a favor and. Uh, Download all of our uh, uh, episodes on mm-hmm. uh, 10, 20 different platforms that you can find. Spend all your time. Don't at work. Like, no, why would you want to have get, the uh, get artificially inflated? Just get more downloads. What difference does it make? We don't do this for the downloads. What's the matter with your eye? I think if you get more downloads. What's wrong with your eye? You keep winking at me. You look, when you look at me, one of your eyes is closed. Yeah. What are you doing that for? That's bright. That light's bright. I think you're drunk. <laughs> I'm not drunk. <laughs> You're drunk. I've only He's one eye closed every time you look at me. Well, it's that when I'm looking straight ahead. Or maybe if you're just winking at me. Maybe you're just hitting on me, baby. I'm trying to seduce you. All right. Kind of like Marianne Williamson. Thank you for listening. Trump. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe, anyway, and all that jazz. I was, on the, I was about to say something. Yeah. We've got to get out of here. Just whatever you do, take your grandma's iPhone and just look up American Timelines on it and hit five stars. No. She doesn't know what it is. She doesn't want to use an iPhone. All right. Anyway, give us false downloads. Okay. we got to go. <laughs> Tell all your enemies to listen to us. Get out of here, Chuck Berry. Take your shirt off, Larry. <laughs> American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. Oh, American Timelines.